Good morning, friends. Russ has taken a couple of days off. I am glad for that. And I'm happy to be the person who gets to check in after our first week of reading through the Gospel of Luke together. I'm wondering if you've kind of found a rhythm that works for you, whether it's morning or evening or location, where it seems to be kind of getting into your routine to do your daily Bible reading. I tried to imagine as I was doing mine, all the places around our community where UCC folks were reading the Gospel of Luke together and it made me really excited. And I hope that you will grab one of those journals that's at all of the doors. I know because Shannon and I restocked every single table. Do not just walk past it. Take some resources. I hope that you'll take one of those journals and experiment with it. Um, perhaps you want a phrase, you're going to write it down as you're going through the reading that stuck with you, or a story that you want to come back to, and so you underline that. Or maybe a question that occurs to you. You know that UCC values curiosity. So be curious, write down some questions, and you can explore the Gospel of Luke for yourself. So I did some exploring this week, and I discovered three things. The first is that the two-volume set of Luke and Acts, both written by the same writer, is some of the most exquisite Greek in all the New Testament. I learned that the author is a skilled literary artist and that the writer of Luke is a master of restraint. I thought that was really interesting. That was new information for me. As you read through the Gospel of Mark, there's this uh, energy, and Jesus is rushing all around. Seems like Jesus is always in a hurry. The writer of Luke takes his time to tell the story and weaves some common themes through all of the stories and builds anticipation for what comes next. So I know that Russ promised you that you could give up five minutes and do the reading, but I'm just thinking if it was six or seven you, you could savor, you could savor what you're reading because this is a storyteller at his best. So I invite you to listen now to the story in front of us today. Abby will read for us only three verses, but there is a lot packed in regarding Jesus' mission and regarding the theology of prayer. Abby, would you read for us? Today's reading will be from Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Here begins the reading. Once when he was in one of the cities, there was a man covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he bowed his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. Then Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, and said, I do choose. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he ordered him to tell no one. Go, he said, and show yourself to the priest. And as Moses commanded, make an offering for your cleansing, for a testimony to them. But now, more than ever, the word about Jesus spread abroad. Many crowds would gather to hear him and to be cured of their diseases. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. 
So you're noticing by now we kind of have a female thing going today. We allow Eric to be part of the leadership so that we can be inclusive. Just saying, in case you didn't notice, just saying. Now, to begin with, we need to, I'd like to clear up something about this man that Jesus heals in this story. The word leprosy used by Luke isn't Hansen's disease. It's more a generic skin problem, one of many. And it's only one of many physical conditions that men or women could have that would cause them to be out of alignment with purity rituals. And if you want to read around the 14th, 15th chapter of Leviticus, you can read that there's a simple solution to all those problems. And here's what you do. If, if this is your problem, then you go to the priest, and this is going to happen. It's really, it's really interesting how that, how that is spelled out in Leviticus. Also, there is no law, there would be, have been no law in the first century forbidding people from touching this man. He's inside the city limits. He stops to talk with Jesus. Jesus puts his hand on him. And that gesture would have been very similar to if we saw each other at the grocery store next week and I greeted you that way because we're members of the same faith community. So we have come to understand, unfortunately, um, some of the, the Jewish um, essence in the first century in a negative way. And scholars today are trying to correct that. Uh, I would lift up the Jewish annotated New Testament. I don't have a copy myself, but my friend Kara loaned me her copy. So we're doing something now to really understand what first century practices would be, and I thought it would be helpful for us to just discuss that briefly ourselves. So now we see Jesus. He's already fully engaged in his mission, and it is the mission that he announced in his hometown of Nazareth on the day that he went to, on the Sabbath when he went to the synagogue and stood to speak. These are the words that he spoke. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those are the words from the prophet Isaiah. And we might think of those words as Jesus spoke them that day as his inaugural address, the beginning of his public ministry. From those words, he went right to work, showing us what it means to set at liberty all folks, all kinds of folks dealing with all kinds of problems. Most of the folks Jesus will heal are not named for us. They are everyday people just struggling to get by. In our story today, the man kneeling in front of Jesus says one elegant sentence. Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. It's a faith statement in two parts. God is the one who has the power to heal, and all healing is in God's hands. But I have to tell you, when we pray for healing for ourselves or for our loved ones, we make it really complicated. Let me give you an example. 
maybe I'm the only person, but I hope not, who prays to God very specific instructions for what I want God to do and how I want God to do it. So what am I doing when I do that? When I think about it later, am I implying that I'm suggesting something to God that God hasn't already considered? That God is listening to me as I pray and go, ah, Renee, that's a great idea. (laughs) Have you ever done that? Or how about this hunch that we all have from time to time that God is listening to some people's prayers much more closely than he's listening to mine. Ever felt that way? Like you're watching somebody who really has success praying. Or have you ever suspected that you didn't get an answer to prayer because you asked for the wrong thing or you asked for it in the wrong way as if there's some secret formula that nobody shared with you and that's why your prayer didn't get answered? Do we think when we pray long and hard that we're going to change God's mind? That God's already decided on one thing and we're going to wrestle God to the ground and get God to change God's mind? The most important question I can ask us today is, all those things, all those things, uh, common misunderstandings that I just mentioned, what do they say about who we understand God to be? What do they say about our understanding of God? My friend Karen, in a church I served previously, kept in spiral notebooks a very careful prayer journal. And if you were in Bible study with her, at the end of Bible study, when we're all saying, hey, would you pray for my mom? Would you pray for my son? At that point, Karen's writing it all down. And the next week, if we gather and we've forgotten what we were praying for, we ask Karen, and she tells us what we prayed for. She prays over that list every day. She kept it up to date. She was very reliable, and over the many years that I was her pastor, I thought, the true prayer list of our congregation is in Karen's notebook. And if you were in Karen's notebook, you were in good shape. So one day... As we were finishing up Bible study, I looked over. We were sharing our prayer requests. Karen wasn't writing anything down. I looked at the stack right next to her on the table, and there was the study book and her Bible, and there wasn't any spiral notebook. I couldn't wait for the group to exit so that I could walk with Karen out to her car and say, Karen, I noticed you don't have your prayer journal with you today. And she said, yes, I'm not doing that anymore. And I said, how is that? How did you make that decision? And she said, I decided that what I was doing was telling God what to do. Not God's will. Mine. Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. God has the power to heal Healing is in God's hands. Isn't that what we just prayed a few minutes ago? That God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven? We all know from our own experience that prayers for healing are answered in many different ways. Rest assured, our good and gracious God 
desires healing. God chooses to provide it, but not always in the way we ask. God's timing is not our own, and anybody who has kept a prayer journal knows what I'm talking about. Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. Jesus smiles at the man and answers, I do choose. Be made clean. This is Jesus living out his mission, bringing into the world the rule of God that Isaiah had prophesied centuries ago. It is coming true in the pages of Luke. Jesus is moving from one location to the next, releasing captives, most of them ordinary people struggling against all kinds of obstacles. He makes himself available to the people without resources, the people without status, those who struggle, those who spend their lives on the margins of society. Now, to the people in power of that day, it must have looked like Jesus was wasting a lot of time stopping every corner of the village to pay attention to a continual stream of nobodies. But you can think of these healing stories that we will be reading in the chapters ahead as well as Luke giving us a series of snapshots to remind us that in Jesus, we can sense the heartbeat of God. That's why we listen to him. That's why we pay attention to his word so that our own hearts will reflect what matters most to God. Stanley Jones was only 23 years old when he went to India as a missionary. The year was 1907. He had planned to study law, but at the last minute decided to enter the ministry. He completed his studies at Asbury College in Kentucky, now Asbury University. Over the decades, he came to love the people of India who expanded his ability to see God at work in the world. In his book, The Christ of the Indian Road, he writes this, a confession. I came to India out of a very conservative training, he wrote. There were no doubts for me because I closed my mind. But as my contact with educated non-Christians became more intimate, those walls I had built began to come down. I remember studying the sacred books of other faiths, always afraid that I might find some goodness and truth in those writings. But Jones found truth and goodness and beauty all around him, including this Hindu scripture. Listen to these words. You are to be like the sandalwood tree, which when smitten by the axe, pours its perfume upon the axe that smites it. Jones heard those words and he said, isn't that Jesus teaching about loving our enemies? Pouring love out on people who don't care for us. Over the years, Jones came to know the servants in the households where he called on families, the servants who helped him at the ashram. He came to love and care for them. He came to know a class of people known as untouchables, 
those people who from their first breath were considered impure, unclean. They were given the worst jobs in society, often jobs in themselves that made you unclean for the rest of society. So now listen to the story that Jones tells, his words. In the Satal Ashram in India, we gave the servants, including the sweeper, more about that in just a minute, we gave the servants, including the sweeper, a holiday one day each week, and we volunteered to do their jobs for them. The sweeper's work included the cleaning of latrines before the days of flush toilets. No one would touch that job but an outcast. Still, we volunteered, Jones said. One day, I was visiting one of our new converts who was hesitating to help. And I said to him, Brother C, when are you going to volunteer? He shook his head slowly, and he said to me, Brother Stanley, I'm converted, but I'm not converted that far. (laughs) Jones taught an amazing thing throughout his missionary life. He taught that conversion, our faith conversion, is both a gift and an achievement. It is the act of a moment. It is the work of a lifetime because we must constantly enlarge the area of our conversion. Isn't that an interesting way to think about it? I'm so challenged by that. So he said, as an example, Brother C had limited conversion. His faith was visible to his family and friends, but really not to anybody else. Unlimited conversion moves out into the community. It causes us to serve people we don't know. It causes us to understand what the world looks like to somebody else. Isn't it possible in our lives to go our whole lifetime never understanding the person who crosses our path every day, what they're up against in their lives, what they're praying for, what their needs are? The whole Gospel of Luke is Jesus identifying himself with those who are shunned, those who are forgotten by society. So listen one more time to Jesus' inaugural address, because as followers of Jesus, it's ours too. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was the kingdom of God coming into the world through Jesus Christ. As we continue our study of Luke, Jesus is going to demonstrate for us again and again and again what the good news is all about.